and welcome to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. My name is Bob Kaler, and as always, I am with my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald in Oklahoma City. Stephanie, how are things down your way? They are just great. You know, it's hard to believe we're in mid-July right now, coming off of the uh, 4th of July holiday weekend, and it's just always hot in Oklahoma. We basically have one day of winter and the rest is hot. (laughs) So my question to you is, what are you doing vacation-wise, if anything, this summer? You know, my family and I just came off of some time off where we were going to travel. We love to travel. We've been all over the place. We've been to Jamaica. We've been to Colorado. I love Colorado Springs where you are, Bob. We just like to go all over the place. But this year, you know, things are a little bit different. So we had a staycation, which was very nice here. And family came to see us and we had lots of fun. But I have to tell you the best thing about it is that my 14-year-old daughter is uh, coming into her gift of baking. And so we've been eating some great food. Nice. Nice. What about you? What about you with plans for traveling? What are you doing? Well, I was supposed to go back to Pennsylvania where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was going to go with my foster brother to the civil war Institute in Gettysburg because that is one of my passions is civil war history uh, deep into the dork forest, you know, (laughs) Uh, but we, um, we were not able to do that. So I've been walking a lot, oh, a wow. lot. And I, a good place to walk. It, it is. And I calculated up the number of miles I've walked since quarantine started on yes. March 15th. 320 miles I've walked since oh. March 15th. Wow. I bet you have worn out your Fitbit. Um, a couple pairs of shoes, but not not so much the Fitbit at this point. Oh, wow. But um, I think that's where my nervous energy goes is walking and listening to podcasts. And one of the yes. podcasts that I listen to, in addition to our own, is yes. Plain Truth, a Holy Spirited podcast. And our guest today, David Watson. How'd you like the segue? That, that was yes, that was great. <laughs> uh, one of our guests today is Dr. David Watson who is one of the hosts for Plain Truth. David is also the academic dean and vice president for academic affairs at United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. He's an ordained elder in the West Ohio Conference, member of the WCA Council, uh, again, co-host of the Holy Spirited Podcast, and also one of the editors of the new Firebrand online magazine. Right. Yeah. And... um, and also author of the book, Scripture and the Life of God, Why the Bible, Why the Bible Matters More Than Ever, published by Seedbed in 2017. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's good to be on with you. We're so glad that you've joined us. And it's just really going to be fun to hear today from you uh, about Scripture. We're excited to be talking about that with you. And friends, I would just really encourage you, go to uh, Plain Truth, the Holy Spirit podcast, subscribe to that because you will be blessed by what you hear. But we're glad that you're here, David. Can we Thank call that a much. sister a sister podcast? Yeah, a sister yeah. podcast. I like that. I think that's good. <laughs> so we wanted to talk to you today about scripture and particularly uh-huh. about how Wesleyans view scripture. Right. And we've heard many United Methodists say many times that our real conflict that's leading to our eventual separation isn't about human sexuality, but it's about the authority of scripture. So we wanted to get this out on the table as we begin our 
podcasts and as we begin moving toward General Conference 2020-21, what do Methodists mean, or more specifically, what did John Wesley mean by the term authority? Yeah, I, Wesley um, meant, and what we mean is simply what what Protestants have always meant, which is scripture is the final rule and norm for Christian belief and practice. Uh, you know, Wesley wasn't doing something very innovative in this regard. Uh, Wesley himself was a product of the English Reformation. And while the reformers didn't always agree on everything, they all affirmed the primacy of scripture for thinking through what Christians should believe and how they should live. So when we talk about the authority of scripture, it's our, I mean, the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, is a Greek word that just means rule or measuring rod. Christians have, have long considered this body of works to be a canon, teaching them what to believe and how to live. But on top of that, I, I want to um, come back, Bob, to the question about, you know, are we really fighting about human sexuality? Is that really the root of our conflict? I don't think there's one root of our conflict. I think we're in disagreement about more things than we often realize or acknowledge. Um, saying this is really about scripture, I mean, it is in part about scripture and it is in part about human sexuality, but I don't think either of those go deep enough. Um, our disagreements in the UMC are about, for one thing, a lot of practical issues like the way we order the life of the church and the roles and responsibilities of bishops. And it's also about theological issues like um, the reality of original sin, the beginning and end of human life, and whether or not categories like male and female are primarily social constructs or are something endemic to the nature of human beings. You know, in 68, we tried to create a pluralist church and um, I don't think we realized how deep the differences would go at that time. So we do have differences um, with regard to how we understand scripture, but we have a lot of other differences as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and when we're talking about, you know, an interpretation of scripture, just looking at scripture, a lot of United Methodists point to the so-called quadrilateral um, when it comes to doing biblical interpretation. And increasingly, when it comes to making decisions around social issues, like human sexuality, what we've been facing lately. But some would say that the quadrilateral represents Wesley's understanding of biblical interpretation, but others would say, interestingly enough, that it distorts it. Um, so can you explain to our listeners, what exactly is the quadrilateral? How did it emerge? And how do we get it right and sometimes wrong? So the United Methodist Church was formed in 1968 and in 1970, uh, there was a theological study commission uh, that Albert Outler chaired that was appointed to write new doctrinal standards for us. Um, we had the two sets of, we had the Articles of Religion from the Methodists and the Confession of Faith from the EUBs. And it was the, the job of the theological study commission to, to come up with our own um, doctrinal statement. Um, but two years later, when they came back to the general conference, they hadn't developed a theological statement, but rather were proposing a theological method and saying that 
you know, what is constitutive of Methodism is a commitment to scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. This came to be called the Wesleyan quadrilateral or the Methodist quadrilateral, something like that. And it, and it really was fleshed out in the work of Albert Outler. Um, Outler didn't entirely invent this idea. We find it um, earlier in the work of an Australian scholar. I believe his name was Colin Williams. But where you don't find the quadrilateral uh, is in Wesley. I'll say something about that in a minute. Um, the problem with the 72 version of the quadrilateral, one of the, one of the problems, is that you had these four resources, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, but no sense of how they related to one another. No statement even of the primacy of scripture. And it said in the 72 discipline, none of these four resources can be uh, defined unambiguously. In other words, we're not even gonna tell you exactly what these mean. I think we have a fairly clear idea of what scripture is, but what about tradition? What do we mean by reason? What kind of experience are we talking about? Um, now, 16 years later in 1988, we defined what these resources do, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience much more carefully. I think the language was, uh, our faith is revealed in scripture, illumined by tradition, confirmed by reason, and vivified in experience. Um, so we got more specific at that time, and that was a step in the right direction. Um, but it left the basic problem in place, which is the question, are we a church that is defined by particular faith claims, or are we a church that is defined by some theological method? And, and really, these have become two different visions of Methodism abiding within the same tradition. Um, and, you know, I think now if you, you want to know what Wesley would have said, I'm, I'm morally certain that Wesley would have said that a church has to be defined by its beliefs and practices and structures. Um, it's not defined by a theological method. Wesley himself never articulated uh, the quadrilateral. Uh, he placed much more emphasis on scripture than many people give him credit for doing. He says he's a man, a man of one book. Right. There, he's a man of one book. And that's really, you know, he read a lot of books. But what he's saying there is he's, he's affirming the primacy of Scripture. No other book can do what Scripture does. No other book teaches you how to be saved and, or is inspired by God for that purpose. Um, Wesley, you know, though he was an Anglican, he was, he was an 18th century Anglican. And so um, the traditions of the church were important for him. But whereas most Anglicans in his day defined, you know, the normative tradition as the first five centuries, Wesley really uh, stopped with the first three centuries. He, he was pretty suspicious of everything after Constantine. And what he was trying to do with Methodism was reconstitute what he called the primitive church. So tradition was important to him, but but there's absolutely no question for him of the primacy of scripture in this regard. Any tradition that didn't cohere with scripture, he would have said is not of God. 
um, reason for Wesley was simply how you applied the clear teachings of scripture to the Christian life. <clears throat> you can go back. I mean, this is, this is the same vision of reason that we find in the writings of um, the 16th century English theologian Richard Hooker, who was so um, instrumental in the formation of what we call Anglicanism. So reason simply tells you how you take the, te the clear teaching of scripture and put it to work in your life and in the life of the, of the church. And then when Wesley talked about um, experience, in general, he was talking about the experience, <clears throat> excuse me, the experience of assurance. If you think about his Aldersgate experience, for example, um, 1738, this, this experience where he had his heart strangely warm. I mean, what happened in that moment, but um, that he felt the assurance of his salvation. I mean, if you read what he said, I knew in that time, Christ died for me and not just for everyone but for me personally it was an experience of assurance so um you know i talk with i've talked i've had more conversations than i ever should have with billy abraham about you know the wesleyan <laughs> quadrilateral i'm a little more sympathetic to him than he to to it uh than he is but um i think it's there are there are more it, it causes more problems than it solves, put it that way. Yeah, because it, it, it often puts everything on an equal plane or in some sense it gives people, I mean, serving in a very progressive part of the church, there's sort of a cafeteria kind of mindset. I, I remember being at a clergy retreat and a bishop asking which one of these the clergy saw as primary in their in their thinking and in their theological uh, in their theological discernment and clearly when when they got to experience almost every hand in the room went up except for maybe four of us who were all sitting together but but that's another matter right, every hand right. goes up with experience because that whole idea was that experience is primarily like how i feel about it what i experience it with um and so you know, one of the things I hear from my progressive friends all the time is that despite what scripture might say in a particular topic, while my experience is different, uh, God is still speaking. Therefore, we can change or modify the interpretation based on the current revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, how you discern who the Holy Spirit is without scripture and what the script, what the Spirit is saying, I'm not sure, but how do you respond to that? Because I know that's a that's a very popular thing that is out there in United Methodism today. Yeah, um, I think we, you know, got that language from the United Church of Christ. Um, God is still speaking, and God is still speaking. I mean, I I agree with that. God is definitely still speaking to the church. I believe um, in the charismatic gifts. I believe in the gift of prophecy, for example. I think God is still speaking. But I also think that God is not the author of confusion and what God has said to the church should be consistent with what God, what God is saying to the church now should be consistent with what God has said in the past, especially consistent with God's definitive revelation in scripture. So yes, God is still speaking, but 
but we do have a rule, a measuring rod, a canon for determining what is actually of God and what is not of God. And so we test the spirits, as First John says. Um, I, I certainly don't want to suggest that, you know, as some, for example, some cessationists do, that um, God really stopped speaking to the church after the closing of the canon. I don't think that's right. And I don't think Wesley would have agreed with that either. In fact, I'm certain he wouldn't have. Um, but what I may hear from God or what you may hear from God is not definitive for the whole church. Scripture is definitive for the whole church and we test our, the revelation we receive against scripture. What's that line from, I forget which hymn of Charles Wesley's it is, but it goes something like, whate'er the spirit speaks in me must with the written word agree. If not, I cast it all aside as Satan's voice or foolish pride, something like that. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, powerful stuff there. Mm -hmm. So as we, as we continue this type of conversation, you know, some more conservative folks, they want to use the words like inerrant or infallible when describing their understanding of the Bible. And some folks have been disappointed that we don't use those words in our draft of the doctrinal statements for the WCA. So can you kind of explain why we don't use those words? I mean, I, I think we don't use them because they're not necessary. Those are fighting words in a way. Um, and especially inerrancy is a term that, that came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, or at least it gained a lot of traction, I should say, in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, especially with the Princeton theologians. I think it, it creates at least as many problems, more problems actually than it solves. What we mean by inerrancy is we generally mean what's called uh, plenary verbal inspiration. So the exact words of scripture are given by a kind of uh, divine download. Um, and usually in the autographs. Okay, so in the original manuscripts, the problem is we don't have the original manuscript. So we're affirming the inerrancy of documents that we don't have. And I've never really seen the point of that. And how would you know um, if they were the original manuscripts in the first place? That's a good question, <laughs> right? right? That's a very good question. Signed by Paul. This is the first one. <laughs> Handwriting analysis, yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, what inerrancy is, it's, it's a, I mean, I really think that what's at stake in inerrancy, um, it's, it's what we would call an epistemological claim. Epistemology is that branch of philosophy that deals with how you know what you know. Mm -hmm. And so what inerrancy is supposed to do is it's supposed to give us a way of securing religious knowledge, having a, a, a sure way of securing religious knowledge. Um, I just don't think it's necessary or even especially helpful for leading people to know and love God in keeping with the Orthodox faith that's handed down through the centuries. I don't, I don't think you need inerrancy and all the problems that attended for that. Um, and you know, inerrancy leads us to, to, you know, 
massive problems, say, with scriptural interpretation itself and dealing with different accounts of, diff of maybe the same event that happened in, in the Gospels. Um, also, uh, it brings us at times into conflict with science in ways that I just don't think is necessary. Infallibility is a different animal. Um, infallibility just means that scripture is an utterly reliable guide for teaching us what we need to know about salvation and the Christian life. And I'd affirm infallibility in a qualified sense. Um, it gets mixed up with inerrancy a lot, but actually these are really different things. Inerrancy is, is an epistemological claim about, about um, how we got scripture and its truthfulness. And infallibility is really a claim about scripture's usefulness for leading us into salvation. I think, you know, our doctrinal standards right now come very close to affirming infallibility. We probably wouldn't want to use the term in our documents internally because I think it creates a lot of unnecessary confusion. But we can say the same things that, that scripture is reliable. Scripture teaches us what we need to know in order to be saved. And we can trust scripture in this regard. We can say that without um, utilizing language that may cause us unnecessary problems. So when we think about scripture as a whole, and we think about the fact that we've sort of swung the pendulum both ways. So quadrilateral on the one hand, which is wide open, if you, if you misinterpret what that really is talking about inerrancy and fallibility, which kind of locks things down in an, in an unnecessary way. Then there is a whole nother category of stuff that's happening where people are saying things like, like Adam Hamilton said in a book a couple years ago, that we ought to have different buckets for different scripture passages, kind of creating canon within the canon. And that's not unusual in Protestantism, Protestantism right? I mean, Luther, in some sense, thought about that as well, probably not to the same degree, but but Hamilton's idea was that there, are, that there should be one bucket for scriptures that express God's heart, character, and timeless will for human beings, another for scriptures that expressed God's will for a particular time but are no longer binding, and one for scriptures that never fully express the heart, character, and will of God. Of course, the question that raises for me is, who determines who goes, what goes in what bucket? Uh, how do you respond to Hamilton's idea? Yeah, I have, I've written about my disagreements with Reverend Hamilton uh, on these matters in a couple places. Um, I think he does, first of all, I want to say, I think he articulates how a lot of people do read scripture, just kind of unconsciously. I just think he gives voice to that. I think that method is problematic in some important ways. For example, what are the implications of saying that there are parts of scripture that God did not inspire? Okay, now remember, we're not doing the inerrancy thing here. Inspiration is not necessarily the, thing, the same thing as inerrancy. But what are, what are the implications of saying there are parts of scripture that God did not breathe into? It means that the church made a mistake in the process of canonization. Did the Holy Spirit failed to lead the church as she developed her primary rule and measuring rod for teaching the faith? Or did the Holy Spirit get it wrong? If we, if we play this, these kinds of questions all the way out, 
I think that um, some of the difficulties with Reverend Hamilton's uh, method become clearer. And additionally, scripture is not just a set of independent theological statements that one can either accept or reject based on some other criteria. Scripture is a great narrative of salvation, and we have to read it as such. The whole thing matters. Not, not, not every passage in scripture is normative or prescriptive, but all of them can teach us even if we don't always understand how. So I think we have to be very careful about which, passes, which passages we're suggesting are or not inspired. And, and that's where I think um, Reverend Hamilton's um, methodology leads. I mean, if a passage never reflected in any way or for any reason the heart of God, um, then I think that it's very difficult to suggest that that passage of scripture is inspired by God. What would God inspire something that in no way ever, even as part of a greater narrative, um, reflects his heart? I just read a good book on the Bible um, by two free Methodist scholars. Um, I reviewed this in the Wesleyan Theological Journal that'll come out sometime in the fall. It's called The Marks of Scripture. It's by Daniel Castello and Robert Wall. It's not a really easy read, but it's a good read. And, and it talks about how just as there are four marks of the church, there are four marks of scripture. Uh, scripture is one, holy, apostolic, and Catholic. I think, you know, as we begin as Methodists to think through scripture in more complex ways, and we're going to have to do that, right? Um, resources like this one are going to be really important for us. Methodists, we Methodist types have not done a good job of thinking through the nature and function of scripture. How many folks leave seminary with a very clear doctrine of scripture? Not a lot. Oh, yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. That's not the case in other traditions, though. It's not the case, say, in the Catholic tradition. It's, it's not the case. I, I wouldn't agree with their doctrine of scripture, but it's not uh, the case in the Southern Baptist tradition. So we really need to do a lot more work around what exactly do we think Scripture is and what exactly do we think Scripture does. And that's, you know, that, that is going to be the work of probably two generations of scholars to help us get this straightened out. Well, and that, that is such a good word for us. And I want to reference your book. Uh, scripture and the life of God, because you offer such good perspective on reading the scripture in a way that is faithful and that helps people enter in uh, to a deeper life and a deeper understanding of who God is. So taking it kind of to a personal level for our listeners, mm -hmm. what advice would you give them about reading the scripture in a way that's both faithful and transformational? Yeah, sure. The first thing I would say is read often. Read every day. Read the Bible every day. You don't have to read a whole lot of it. Just read something every day. The next thing I would say is read the whole Bible. Don't just reread your favorite parts again and again. Allow God to challenge you and surprise you by reading through the whole canon. 
the third thing I would say is pray as you read. You know, Wesley, when you, you sometimes when Wesley talks of the Bible, he's it sounds like he's talking about one of the means of grace. In fact, he is talking about a means of grace. Reading scripture is one of the ordinances of God that he talks about in the general rules. Um, so scripture is a means of grace. The Holy Spirit wants to work through scripture in order to form you and me into the people we were always meant to be. And so pray as you read. That's, that kind of sums that one up. And then the final point, seek the wisdom of the community of faith, both the present community and the people who have gone before us. Don't just read like a lone ranger. Read with other Christians and draw upon the wisdom. I mean, one of the great things about being a Christian today is that we have centuries of amazing wisdom from Christians who have gone before us that we can draw upon. And uh, so avail yourself of that wisdom and, and learn all that you can from faithful fathers and mothers in the faith who have gone before us. That, that's helpful. I think sometimes people open the scriptures kind of like someone who, well, let's put it in an academic sense, right? So an, an academic scholar now, if you're approaching a particular subject, you want to find something new that no one has ever said about this before, because that's what's going to help sell the book. And, and it seems to me that a lot of Christians read scripture that way. Like I'm the first person to open this. And up until now, everyone else has been an idiot in interpreting this. And now I have the wisdom to be able to do this. I'm going to find the thing that no one else has found. And wasn't it Tom Oden who said something like he wanted on his tombstone that he contributed nothing new to the study of, of theology, right? Something like yeah. he, was, he was always about getting the ancient wisdom and um, and right. thinking about thinking about the fact that I don't read this in isolation with with Christian history, but also I don't read it in isolation from the church's interpretation. Right. I just you know it's 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 funny you mention that. I just have written a, a an article about this for Firebrand, and and uh, it deals with a book that does exactly what you're describing, called The Unseen Realm, by Michael Heiser. Uh, it is a very popular work, but Heiser kind of says, look, I've, I've figured out this thing about scripture that no one else has ever figured out. And this is the hermeneutical key for reading the whole thing. This is the key to understanding scripture. And I just think, man, no, you, you can't do that. <laughs> it, you're, it's like, um, I think it was Gordon Fee who said, uh, novel readings of scripture are usually not good ones. And that's, that's what he provides is a very, very novel reading of scripture. And I just think there are so many wise, faithful, godly people who have gone before us to teach us, you know, yes, I mean, perhaps there are new things to learn about scripture, but I don't think that we're going to find anything at this point that is, um, that is a brand new key for understanding the whole thing. We're always looking for a loophole, yeah. like, like a bunch of lawyers, you know, wanting yeah. to find the loophole. Maybe it doesn't actually say that. Um, but I go back to, to Genesis, Genesis 3. We just had Bill Arnold on for our last episode. Yeah. But it just occurred to me, what does the snake say to, to Eve? 
did God really say? Right. And that's kind of where we are. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's that idea. Did God really say? Well, yeah, he did. And, and here's the long witness of, of who has helped us to, to realize that. We don't read this in isolation. We're never coming at it. The very fact that we open a, a book that has come to us translated in English over a long period of time is, is something like that. And, and that brings me to something else. I'm just thinking of these off the top of my head because it strikes me. The other thing that I hear people say is that so-called red letter Christians or those who are probably in the more progressive side to say, well, we had Jesus before we had the scriptures. So we, we listened to Jesus uh, more than we listened to the Bible. And my response to that is always, how would you know anything about Jesus if it weren't for the Bible? <laughs> Yeah, and we also did have scriptures uh, before Christ became incarnate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had the scriptures of Judaism, and the scriptures of the New Testament are simply a continuation of the same story as the scriptures of the Old Testament. They're all, it's all one thing. And so uh, I get the impulse of the red-letter Christians to be faithful Jesus followers. I commend them in that. I think that 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 particular methodology for reading scripture is not very helpful. Um, Because what about, I mean, yes, Jesus did say things and those things are exceedingly important, but what about the Bible that Jesus also considered scripture? And what about the witness of the Holy Spirit who is by the way, God teaching the church after Jesus departure? So it's kind of like we're pitting God against God. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to be a helpful exercise to me. Yeah, as Ben Witherington puts it, a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you yeah. wanted to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I think is really helpful. So David, I want to throw out this last question to you. This is an off script kind of question. So we're putting okay. you on the spot here. <laughs> but because <laughs> of your great uh, wisdom in this area, and I've loved what you have shared with us today. I know that people who are listening, we've got all kinds of folks listening, people who have highest level degrees in academia and, and then just your run of the mill lay person who's good part of America kind of churchgoer. So for all those people listening today, what are your top three translations of the Bible that you would recommend? Since you're telling people, let's get into the scripture every day, what would you tell them would be some of the best translations to be reading right now? Probably in this order, um, NRSV, NIV, and ESV. Okay. Um, I know some people like more uh, colloquial translations mm-hmm. uh, than this. I think those are pretty um, pretty true to the text, though. Uh, when I read the Bible, just for devotions, I usually read in the NRSV. And I, th- I think it's a very, um, I think it's a good combination of being readable, but also staying true to, to the languages. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Well, David, we cannot thank you enough for taking time to be with us today and for everything that you have shared. We so appreciate your work. I would just remind everybody, check out Firebrand Magazine, uh, check out David's podcast, a Holy Spirited podcast, and he's just got some great stuff going on. He's really helping us to become the church we were meant to be. So thank you, David, for all your work. Thanks for having me on today.
And we'll make sure we put links to Firebrand, firebrandmag.org. And dot com. The dot com. Yeah, yeah. Dot com. <laughs> so firebrandmag.com. It's free uh -huh. resource though, right? Uh, it is a free resource. Yeah, it's a dot com. Yeah. So, um, so make sure you check that out. There's some tremendous Wesleyan scholars who are writing some really good stuff on that. Um, and, and you can, you can subscribe to it. It'll pop up in your email. I've been really blessed by it. And, and also, uh, the Holy Spirited podcast, um, Plain Truth with, uh, with David, with Scott Kisker and mm -hmm. with Maggie Ulmer, all who yeah. are at United Theological Seminary. There's a lot of fun stuff there. I was, talking with David beforehand about the interviews they did with Billy Abraham that were yeah. very, very entertaining <laughs> on so many levels. Yeah. It was really fun. So make sure Thank you check you. that out too. After you listen to ours or before, make sure you check out uh, our sister <laughs> podcast at Plain Truth. Amen. Thank you. And we want to encourage you if you've got questions or comments or you want to contribute to our, our upcoming mailbag with a question, uh, to email us at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. Uh, we also encourage you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Tell others about what's going on with the Holy Conversations podcast. We're excited to be bringing you some of the, some of the top folks in, in envisioning this new Methodism. David's been a huge part of that. I've worked with David on the WCA Council um, I'm, I'm proud to say, you know, he's a friend and, and I just so respect his, his view and uh, keeps us grounded theologically and, and biblically and otherwise. So thank you again, David, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We'll see you.